0: Thank you for coming out. Oh yeah. Thank you for coming out. Thank you for coming out. Thank you for coming
1: out. Thank you for coming out. Welcome. My name is Dubs Weinblatt. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm really excited to be here today. We're recording during Pride Month, uh, and I don't know about you, but I'm feeling extra gay. Uh, five Prides ago, I founded the Queer Improv Show, Thank You for Coming Out, or TIFCO as we call it, and it is now one of the longest-running queer improv shows in New York City. During the show, our storytellers share their coming out stories, and then our improvisers bring them to life. Today will be a little bit different. We do have a special guest here today who will share her story, um, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, we have a very special guest, like I mentioned, Rachel Garbus, pronouns she, her, hers. Uh, welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Doves. Yeah, my pleasure. So we all have multiple coming out stories, um, and I would love to hear one of yours.
0: I would be so happy to share it. Uh, So I, uh, maybe perhaps like many other people out there, uh, struggled with my sexuality a lot, um, grew up in a very gay place, uh, Northampton, Massachusetts. Many of your listeners may know it well. It is the highest concentration of lesbians per capita, definitely in the country, I think in the world, um, specifically lesbians, not necessarily queer identifying LGBTQ plus people, but specifically lesbians. And particularly in the eighties and nineties, lots of people migrated there from New York and San Francisco. So I grew up, um, amidst many, many lesbians, uh, But I, myself, really struggled with that identity for a host of different reasons. Um, And just really had a hard time figuring that out for myself. And for me, it really wasn't a question of visibility. I know a lot of people who didn't know that they were queer because they had nobody there who was queer to say, oh, this is a thing that you can do. Um, And also, I had plenty of visible people out there who were living lives that made sense to me, who looked like the lives my parents were living. So the idea that queer people could get married and raise children and have a house and a dog and be boring like all other parents were, that felt totally real to me. Um, But for me, I think I had this very particular idea of what uh, queerness meant. So it took me a really long time to kind of wrap my head around the idea that that might be who I was. Um, and then, as is often the case for people, I met somebody who really changed me in this particular way. Um, and there, we met doing this show, uh, and I was dancing in it. It was a dance theater piece um, based on the work of Pina Bausch, who's a German theater dance maker. She had this company in Germany called Tanztheater. And I was working with this experimental theater company that was sort of using her work to inspire the work that we were doing to make this devised piece. And um, and this person, uh, I'm going to call her R, she was working on this piece with me as a lighting designer, and we did it two summers in a row. And I think the first summer, you know, I was still in college and I was still had like really suppressed these feelings for myself. Um, And then the second summer, so we were sort of friendly the first summer and then the second summer, we just kind of connected in a different way. I think I was more open to this idea that that maybe exploring this attraction to women was a thing that I could do uh, and was just more curious about. And we sort of found ourselves in a similar place. She had just had her first relationship with a woman, um, which I think really threw open the door for her. And they had recently had a breakup, and R was really devastated about that. Um, So she was in this really vulnerable place, and I was in this really curious place, which also felt really vulnerable. And we just kind of found ourselves there together. And I think because neither of us were quite ready to wholeheartedly own that identity, I think that for her, that relationship felt really singular, and she wasn't necessarily sure if she was ready to wholesale declare herself as being this kind of person. And I didn't really have an object like that to say, yes, I loved this person, and that was going to help. You know, I just was sort of coming to this idea that maybe I loved women and wanted to be in relationships with women. And I think she was maybe coming to that place as well. So... We were doing this show, and as anybody who's worked in theater or dance or any kind of collaborative art form knows, you sort of are thrown together in this way where the boundaries of what um, normal relationships look like just kind of go out the window, just as a consequence of the way that those things work. So I think because of that, because we were working in these very close quarters, and we were working these very late nights, and we took the show to New York, and we did it at a few different theaters, uh, we just were sort of thrown together in this way that we Maybe normally wouldn't have been. and and we sort of just together tripped through this exploration together. Um, and it was not easy and it was not um, it was not clean. and it did not turn into a beautiful relationship. I think later, after having had that relationship, I had my first real relationship with a woman, which allowed me to explore all of these things in a in a different way. But I think that first relationship, with R was, um, it was such a beautiful hand-holding entryway into this place together. And even though we both were really struggling with whether we were going to sign on to that identity and and say this is who we are, we're queer, Um, we're going to date women, Um, we allowed each other a space to work through what that meant for us individually. And then I think the most beautiful thing was that It ended, and I moved. I got a job, and I moved to Georgia. uh, And she got a job, and she stayed in Massachusetts. And I got into a new relationship and was with a woman, and she was in a relationship with another woman. But we have stayed friends the entire time, and we're still really good friends now. And to have walked this entire journey with her and feel like somebody watched me transform while I watched them transform into the people that we are now uh, is just such a rare gift. I think that that, you know, I think that the, the compelling nature of desire um, to me feels like I would have found my way here anyways. I'd like to think that I would have found myself here anyways because this is who I am and it's scary to think that the incidental things along the way are the things that lead you there, but they are. I mean, I think that the incidental ways that we meet people The unexpected encounters that we have are ways that help open us up to these things and to allow a space to figure out who we are. So I think being able to have had that journey with somebody and watch them blossom into the person that they are now was really a rare gift. So I would count that really uh, as a seed that that germinated into the person that I am now, and I feel really grateful for that.
1: That's that's really awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, I have so many questions. Oh, <laughs> um I'm thinking back to what you were saying about um, just growing up in a place with so many lesbians, and so and and having that visibility there in that kind of way. And I would love. But then at the same time, you still were feeling like that couldn't be you. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you can expand on that and kind of talk about maybe where there was a disconnect or why there was a disconnect. Or even if you, I don't know if you have an answer or let's find, let's talk about
0: it. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'd love to. Uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this Mm -hmm. uh, and and I've also written about this. And I think that for me, one of the things that felt confusing um, was sort of the the visibility of femininity in Mm. queerness Mm -hmm. and that that was something that felt confusing I think I was raised by a mother who adored me and is wonderful and she's my best friend and she's straight and she has a very sort of traditional conception of femininity you know she wore sundresses and I love to wear dresses you know I think she styled my sense of femininity in a way that felt really familiar to me. And I I know so many people who, for whom that relationship can be an early disconnect in who they are and who their mother wants them to be. I Mm -hmm. think that that, Mm -hmm. I know for a lot of people, that can be a really tricky place. I think for me, my relationship with my mom was so good, and I felt so at ease in this conception of femininity that felt really inherent to how she raised me as a girl – Um, And it was hard to translate that into this feeling of attraction towards girls that I had Um, because I think a lot of the visible queerness around me um, didn't look the way that I wanted to look. And I think that I internalized a lot of mainstream ideas about how girls ought to look. So I think I had this very, and also how to behave. I think I had this very rigid, um, idealist, sense of what I was supposed to be and how to look and how to behave. Uh, And that involved looking in a certain way and being a certain way. Um, And that didn't quite match up with this other thing. And I think I also had a conception of girlhood and femininity um, that was very much embedded in doing the right thing always, of like Mm. always living up to people's expectations, always doing the right thing. I was the oldest sister. I always wanted to do the right thing. And I never wanted to be different from that. I I never wanted to be a disappointment in any way. And I think that there was a way that being like a good, feminine, dress-wearing, smart, homework-doing, chore-assisting, flute-playing girl, that made sense. But that version of a girl who liked girls, that didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And I will say that I had one... Uh, token of visibility in that way that was hugely instrumental in my life and that was my sixth grade teacher uh, and her she was married to a woman and they later had a baby boy and she I just was dazzled by her in every way that you can be dazzled by a person when you're 12 Um, she was so sunny and so warm and she wore dresses and sandals and she had this long blonde hair. Um, she had, she was like Midwestern. I remember she told this story, we were all going through puberty and she told this hilarious story about going through puberty and how her limbs got really long and she was like (laughs) knocking into everything. And I just like, ah, to be long limbed and awkward, like Ms. R. Um, everybody in the story has an R name for some reason. that. (laughs) That just happens to be true. Uh, I don't only surround myself with R identifying named I'm, people. I'm glad you have diversified your, yeah, your groups. my letters. Yeah, 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 yeah. I right. strayed from R's. <laughs> I myself still identify as an R letter. But, oh, yeah, um, that's so true. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very liberal in my association with others. Um, so, yeah, so Miss R was huge for me. And I think that that also was a tiny seed that helped germinate into this idea of like, okay, there is a conception of femininity that feels you know, traditional, and in that I think I've struggled a lot of, like, what does it mean to identify in a way that feels traditional and not want to be traditional in all these ways that feel Mm -hmm. um, suppressive of other impulses and also suppressive of other people? How do I embrace a concept of gender expression that feels really comfortable to me and still make space for people who are throwing the walls off of that? So I've grappled with that and written about that and interviewed people about that and just think about that a lot, and I think that Um, part of becoming comfortable in my own queerness and my own identity is embracing that femininity and finding ways for it to bloom in a queer space and have it be in allyship with people who don't express themselves in that way. But I think that that was a process of doing that. And I think that coming out meant sort of holding on to that identity and also... um, and going after the things that I wanted and being true to my desire Mm -hmm. which is a very different thing you know I think we collapse queerness a lot um, especially people outside of the community who have a hard time distinguishing between the two but like sexual orientation and desire like lives in a different realm than gender expression and Mm -hmm. the desire for oneself to feel like oneself so I think finding ways to see where those things split but also seeing where they come back and complement each other is a very nuanced thing and I think I'm Always engaged in understanding that work more.
1: Yeah, I feel the same way. I, whenever I, I go into a, an, an organization and do trainings, I make sure to separate those. But like, mm-hmm. these are very different. They sometimes inform each other, but they are very different. Mm-hmm. And like, let's talk about why they're different and how they're different. And it's a, it's really interesting to watch people who have never thought about it before, kind mm-hmm. of have those light bulbs go off of, oh, that, that is, different they yeah. are totally i'm like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let's keep talking yeah yeah totally um i so miss r was out uh-huh. and they, like talked openly about her partner and and her baby at some point mm-hmm. um baby r
0: baby, baby r baby w oh okay oh. well baby w yeah, yeah. okay
1: <laughs> great uh, um that's really cool i remember i, I don't I'm trying to think back to all of my teachers, and I don't believe any of them were queer. Yeah. Um, some I like wished were because uh-huh. <laughs> like also was super dazzled by my teachers. Yeah. Um, a lot a, a lot of them. Yeah. But I wished I, I think it would have been really powerful to have someone who I looked up to like in a personal way have a queer identity, and then but I also wonder too. I don't know, yeah, I just, I there's
0: no way to know, like, what, how that could have shaped me in a different way. I think it's huge, and I think for me now, I teach, and I facilitate, and it's important for me that, as often as I can in spaces where it feels safe and makes sense, that I come out to my students, uh, in order to be that visible presence of a person who may not, quote-unquote, read gay, but is, and Mm -hmm. to sort of present this, you know, to help present a rainbow of ways to be in the world. Uh, And because I know how meaningful that was for me and I know how many people didn't have that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's made a great deal of difference in terms of growing up in Northampton and having queerness all around. Thinking about marriage and partnership and the possibility of that. I have a good friend from the South. I was in Georgia for four years and he um, said that growing up, he just had accepted from a very young age that if he was going to embrace his queerness, that meant that he would never have a normal, quote-unquote, normal life, that he would never be able to be married, he would never be able to have children, uh, that that he would have to, in order to embrace this part of his personality and his identity and his self, that he would have to give up all these other things. And I feel so incredibly grateful that that was never the case for me. There were queer women raising kids from as far back as I can remember and who were very close friends of my parents. And so that was never in question. The idea that you could come out and be who you were. Um, you know, w- whether you could do that without sporting a rat tail was like kind of a different thing because it was the early 90s and the rat tail was That's amazing. abundant all over Massachusetts, particularly among <laughs> queer women raising kids. So there was a lot of flannel and a lot of rat tails and a, a, a few mullets, you know, and like badass. I mean, I like they were some badass, incredible women. But I think as a small kid who only wanted to wear dresses and was obsessed with having babies, like all I wanted to do was be but that babies. Like, I had the most heteronormative idea of what my future held for me. I was going to get married to a man. I was going to knock out a ton of kids. I was going to work on a farm. Like, like, anything that involved, like, that kind of feminine ideal was really hot to me. And so I think that felt really different. But the idea that for those who wanted it, it was there and it was attainable, um, that was always without question. And so I think once I came into myself and recognized, like, oh, I can be the woman that I am and be attracted to the people that I am, uh, and still have the things that I want, you know, that, that, that became, you know, I was able to embrace that because that had been so visibly presented to me from a young age. Mm. Yeah. I am thinking,
1: I'm thinking back to like growing up, there were no queer people around me or maybe one or two, Uh, or uh, queer to me, visibly, or, Mm -hmm. like, out to me. Right. Or that I was aware of. Um, But I just... I remember really wanting that, like, heteronormative traditional life, also. Mm -hmm. But but knowing that something was going to be different about it. Mm -hmm. um, And I just... I remember struggling so much with... I want that, but it's going to be different. And, like, and if it's different, is it that? Like, Mm -hmm. is it? Like, can I have can I get married and have babies? Well, I don't want to have babies, but like be a parent Mm -hmm. um, and have a dog running around with Mm -hmm. a fence. Right. And it's like, is it traditional if the like structure of it is not traditional? Mm -hmm. And then once I figured out that I am a gender queer person, so like it's very rare to see a family. I have, I still have only seen a handful of like family structures with one partner being gender queer or both. And, so it's almost like I am still trying to like figure out what that looks like, and yeah. almost kind of building my own framework for what that is, and yeah. that's really scary and hard, and and it's just I don't know, it's all just so complicated.
0: Yeah, and it's, and, and it's new. It's, yeah, it is a new frontier, and I think that we are engaged in a very interesting moment in Western society where we are just tearing oh. stuff down. yeah. Like we are climbing on the top of these walls and we are taking our tiny little sledgehammers and we are just (laughs) furiously beating them down and you feel this the disruption of this moment in time you know and I'm relatively young like I can't say that I you know, I could say, I can't remember a time where things felt this like. I can't remember anything beyond the past 10 years of what life has felt like when I became sort of awakened to the world that we're living in. But I do think that most people would agree that this is a particularly momentous time mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what we are uncovering and what we are refusing to accept any longer as normal and, you know, unquestionable... And I feel all the time the bewilderment and wonder and excitement, but also terror of that, of like what are we building in the place of that, and how do we do this with integrity, and how do we do this with the sum of the blueprint of what we want, Mm -hmm. and with this new conception of a different thing, and then how do we create a community that agrees when we're all agreeing to no longer agree that just what we've been doing the whole time is the new thing. You know, there's this real just earthquake of rebuilding that I think is incredible, but I think we all feel that, you know, the magical uncertainty of that. So I totally, you know, and I mm-hmm. think that that's why just, I just always come back to visibility, 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 yeah. mm-hmm. and just story sharing all the time. You know, I think that, programs like this and shows like thank you for coming out and doing storytelling shows for queer people but also for every people you know every group of people that feels their world shifting sh- deserves a space to talk about that mm-hmm. and to say this is how I'm experiencing this and this is how I'm choosing to live because I think the more we show each other this can be done the more other people say this can be done and we're going to do it like that
1: yeah visibility is everything it's, I just it's, just, it's yeah. everything. And, um, I have a, I have a two part question. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just want to, so would you say Miss R would be your like ring of keys moment? Like this, you're like awake. I think you even maybe use the word like awakening of like, okay, this is like something that's possible in my realm of, of living.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think if there's a ring of keys moment, yeah. And I was 12, which somehow feels like that moment of you're experiencing desire, you know, I'd been in love with every single teacher I'd ever had since I was, like, two, you Literally know. But same. there's yeah. like Yeah, totally. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any kid who, like, loved school and, like, loved showing up and, like, doing that, I think, like, is a long list of teachers we were all in love with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but I think that for me, Miss R was, was huge, you know, in so many ways. But I think that moment of this is a person who is living a lifestyle that I you know can imagine that makes sense this kind of partnership and raising kids uh, and is doing it with a woman you mm-hmm. know and it's really funny so I went to that school and that she still teaches there and then I came back to teach there when I was in college in the summers and they had hired a gym teacher um, who was also queer and out and just like really at home in her body and her way of being uh, did she have a rat too? She did not have a oh, rat tail. Man. Now, if she had had a rat tail, she would have pulled it off. Her name was Miss R. D. Know, exactly. Miss R R R. Um, it was Miss D, another D. I only I've expanded to R's and D's. I'm living in a, cl- <laughs> a blue bar, the occasional W. Uh, and she um and she and it was funny, so now you know I was in my twenties and I was really like more at home in my desire and I sort of like had had this full experience and you know Miss R is there still teaching and we waved at each other in the hallway and I'm like oh my god you're still like so dazzling and beautiful and wonderful and then Miss D is like you know this she she was like really attractive <laughs> and it was like funny to sort of come back as an adult and be like now I feel at home in my queerness and like I this is like the kind of woman that I'm interested in and like, and want to date and like sort of that kind of thing. Um, and it was sort of this full circle thing of like this teacher at this school helped me feel comfortable admitting these objects of desire that then like then came back in that way. Yeah. So that was an interesting
1: experience. Yeah. I, 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 I sometimes forget that I'm an adult now. Uh-huh. Still, do you know? Like and totally. what you were saying reminded me of like and I'm an adult now, and like in this new like you know settled in my queerness, and it's like sometimes I forget that like I'm a full grown adult that can desire like teachers. Yeah, you know, because it's like but you're a teacher. Yeah, you're and I'm a teacher. <laughs> I can't I'm have a crush on A kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Totally. So it's like I still have
0: to remind myself like no, you're like fully cooked and like yeah totally. grown up. Um <laughs> <laughs> like the moment that like it's like who's gonna drive this giant passenger van? Like it should be the most responsible person and you look around and you're like, is that me? Yeah. Like, I can't drive a 14 passenger van. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well certainly nobody else here can. So I like, guess well, that's me. Twelve. So yeah, I guess I'm, I, I'm literally the, the only person who can <laughs> and
1: I'm gonna drive this van. Yeah. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. uh I went to LA a, a couple months ago for work and I ended up like renting the car and doing the driving. And I was yeah. like, oh okay, Uh I'm the adult here.
0: (laughs) It was so weird. That's like a different (laughs) ring of keys moment of like when they hand you the keys to the adulthood and you're like, what? And they're just like going through the gate and you're like merging is scary. Yeah, totally. You're like, people are asking me my opinion because
1: it matters. What? (laughs) Yeah, it's a weird thing to like wrap my brain around. Mm -hmm. Um, But so you were talking about visibility and giving people space to share their stories and how important that is. In um, building, And I, I totally agree with you, of course. And, you know, building bridges and empathy regardless of, I mean, h- having conversations around the same topics and same identities is really important. And I also think there's a lot of importance in finding the common threads, um, like, between or among multiple identities mm-hmm. to build empathy, to be like, oh, maybe I didn't grow up in the closet with a queer identity, but I grew up... Um, with other kinds of things that I, you know, that my family wouldn't accept, like dating outside the religion or mm-hmm. the race or whatever it is. Um, and so I've, I know that creating space to create that visibility is super important. Mm-hmm. And you have a podcast mm-hmm. um, and it's called Senior Moments. It is. And I would love to hear more about that and the kinds of stories that you hear and the kind of impact that those
0: stories are having on the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. So Senior Moments is a podcast that started out of a grant that I received from the Brooklyn Arts Council, uh, which is jointly funded from lots of different New York uh, organizations and funding streams. Uh, and I think technically while I had the grant I was supposed to rattle them all off and thank them individually but the grant is over so the podcast has continued but thank Mm -hmm. you to all of those amazing organizations (laughs) that funded into this grant that was given through the Brooklyn Arts Council Uh, and the way that the grant works is that you um, receive the grant to do an artistic project at a senior center so they place you as an artist in residence at a senior center somewhere in New York and you work on an art project and it's sort of teaching with creative uh, components. So you're showing people how something is done, but you're also getting their input in creating it. So I pitched this storytelling podcast, uh, and they placed me in a senior center on Coney Island. And so I was there over a period of about three months recording stories, and we did a few different episodes, uh, but they all centered around people telling their stories. and. So everybody there you know, qualifies to be at the senior center. I think that it's maybe 60 or above, might even be a little bit younger. So we had participants of all ages from there and above uh, telling all kinds of different stories about their childhood and about their first jobs and about falling in love for the first time and about being older and the things that they've experienced then and uh, interviewing people who um, had these incredible careers and, you know, are now here in this other stage of their life, artists and singers, and um, one woman who's 102 years old who just still lives by herself and gets around, and it's incredible. So it just became a really uh, just open space for people to just share. And I think for me, the part that felt transformative about it was the space where they were just listened to with real Mm -hmm. focus. And I think that that is a thing that gets lost so often everywhere is listening. And I, I think people say that a lot. I don't think I'm saying anything revolutionary there. But to me, it feels like, especially when I think about all of the privilege that I contain, like, you know, whatever minority identity positions I hold I still come with an immense amount of privilege financial privilege and educational privilege and age privilege uh, which you know was certainly in play there in a way that maybe it isn't elsewhere and like social location privilege you know all this kind of privilege that I think one of the most transformative ways that we can offer a balancing in that privilege is to show up and listen yep and I think something like a storytelling podcast just by default requires me to be solely occupied in listening in literally making sure that the levels are right so that this person can be heard Uh, And then also not making any noise so that I'm not interrupting their story and making sure that everybody else in the room is not making noise so that this person can tell their story. And I could see so visibly the thing that happened when somebody realized that they were being listened to in this way. There is a silence in the room and I feel it here now, creating this one, because that's what that is the sound that you need to create in order for a podcast to work, is the sound of quiet, is the sound of listening. And for that silence to descend, especially in this place that's loud, there's a thousand people doing a thousand different things. There's this very exciting, chaotic senior center where they're playing pool and mahjong and ping-pong and having lunch. And you know, we would close a room to the room where we were recording. We put a sign on the door that said recording in session, do not enter. People really respected that. And everybody in the room would just be very, very quiet and allow space for this person to talk. And I think the the microphone, the, the aspect of it, where the podcast element helped support that uh, was the, uh, the sort of almost solemnity of a microphone. You know, the solemnity of a record button, that you create a space that is physically... Uh, denoting the importance of the of what is happening there you know I think that and a lot of people said afterwards this reminds me a lot of our memory class and they have a memory class there where a a social worker comes and it's just a very casual drop-in class and people just chat about their lives you know and Mm -hmm. it's of course a space for people to talk and to be listened to But it's really a class about preserving memory, which, of course, is an incredibly important thing always and becomes even more important as you get older to make sure that you're constantly working those muscles to protect them. So it's a space with a very practical purpose, this memory class. But for them to say, this reminds me of my memory class, and then to be able to assign it the significance of creating a piece of art Mm -hmm. really created a connective tissue that I didn't even expect would be as powerful as it was. And I think that that, for me, was the motivation to keep following that thread and saying, okay, this feels important. This is a space that kind of wherever you are, whoever you're with can instantly be transformed into a space where your story is the most important thing. And we are all engaged in the practice of listening to it. Um, That that has powerful implications for all kinds of different things. So that grant ended, it's over, Um, but I'm going to apply for a new grant to take this on the road somewhere else and I hopefully would like to use it as a place to do oral history storytelling that is place specific that gives the people who are living in a community an opportunity to talk about their experience living in that community uh especially with an eye towards communities that are changing really rapidly and I think that For me living in Brooklyn and being a part of a massive wave of gentrification that is uprooting people literally before my eyes and to be complicit in something like that that feels so structurally violent and finding ways to interrogate that and to be present in that and to acknowledge my role in that, but also find ways of, I don't even know what to call it without making it problematic or self-aggrandizing just what are the small ways that we can use the skill sets that we have uh to at least be a part of this conversation and to me it feels like having a conversation where I'm not in the conversation feels like Mm -hmm. a good place to start of like I would like to create an enduring senior moments podcast where you never hear me talk and if you do it's because I'm asking a question and the important thing is to hear the answer and I think that that is you know a thing that there are myriad ways that that can manifest for different people, but I think having this particular avenue to do that feels like a way to start engaging in that conversation of just letting people whose communities are changing be the spokespeople of their own stories and to tell those. Because I think that that relationship is often exploitative in so many ways, that there's an exploitation of the space, there's an exploitation of the community, but then oftentimes there's an exploitation of the stories and of the people who live there and of the cultural iconography that lived there before, you know, that people say, oh, I loved this thing that this community brought in here. I'm going to keep that. Um, but I'm not so interested in the person who put it there, mm. you know. So finding ways to to use that format to kind of come in and say, OK, what's happening here? You know, so, yeah, that's that. Yeah, it's amazing. I I hope my
1: I was like I've been like gently typing. I hope mm-hmm. that that's not been distracting. Not at all. Okay. Type, gently. Type away. <laughs> okay, great. But only the R keys and the D keys. <laughs> right. Okay. So I have to. I have some editing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved sound of listening. I think that was really awesome. I put that in my notes. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I I do this program called Crafter Truth where um, we work with um, LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness, mm-hmm. and we bring in teach professional teaching artists. W- who have all different kinds of performance skills whether it's spoken word or song or dance or storytelling or whatever it is um and <clears throat> these clients share like work on a, on a piece of art and then we perform it either for each other or for an audience um but it's it's so wild to me that the feedback that I always 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 get from the clients is I didn't think anyone even cared about my story mm-hmm. and thank you for giving us a space to talk about it and work through it and perform it and just kind of connect with each other in this way that I didn't think could ever be possible and also um again that 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 you care that mm-hmm. people care like we absolutely care that's yeah. like and and um, you know, the teaching artists aren't really even part of the pieces unless the clients want them to be. And it's really just about them and their story and giving them that platform of here's here's what I want to share with you, and it's really cool. And um I there was one moment where um there was a basically we're doing a fundraiser for new alternatives, and we invited some of the clients to be part of it, and it was also among other like Broadway stars, and so there were these a few clients. And um, we w- were doing a sound check, and he had um, r- had this like beautiful um, spoken word like rap piece that he had created, and um, there was like the chorus was a, like a, a song, but had never put music to it. And so he w- was coming just to like practice, and uh-huh. then there happened to be a band there that, were, that was accompanying all of the other artists. And the band was like, do you want us to put music to what you're doing? And he was like, can you do that? And they were like, yeah. So it was like this most incredible, like 15 minutes of watching, of him going through it once, and all of the musicians taking all these different notes and having him like repeat different parts of it. And then um, watching it come together and Mm -hmm. watching his face, see this thing that he had written and worked so hard on for a long time come to life in this way that he never expected was possible. Mm -hmm. And it just was, I was like in fully in tears and just like, this is, this is why I'm doing like, this is why I want to like give people this opportunity to watch them see like, Oh, I have this skill. I have this talent. I I have a story that people care about that. Otherwise I don't know if they would have had the opportunity to experience that. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, it was a really incredible moment to be part of. And I just keep wanting to reiterate to them like we care about your stories and we care about what you have to say and keep sharing if you want like yeah it's like it was it was awesome yeah
0: (laughs) I love that yeah I think that that doesn't happen enough I think that the the impulse for ego is so strong you know and it makes sense I think that that is, you know, we live in an individualistic society. We're taught to be to think that we are special if we come from a privileged space where people are telling us those things. Yeah. I think as a creative person, as an artist, you're often told to follow your own impulse, and that's a good, beautiful thing. But there's this incredible shift that can happen where you say, how do I employ all of these skills and all of these connections and all of these networks uh, to get off of the stage, you know, to create a space where other people can get on the stage, and I think that that is a really powerful thing. Yeah, and that, like to be able to see the moment where that happens, mm-hmm. like that, like those little kernels just keep you going. You yeah. don't have to like keep pushing for that, to keep creating spaces where that happens. Uh, and I think that that's so beautiful. I was in Haiti doing a theater workshop with these girls, these teenage girls, and I had come thinking I was going to do. Uh, Augusto Boal's Theater of the Oppressed work and I don't know if you know much about Theater of the Oppressed he's um, this incredible uh, theater maker from South America uh, and he was working in Brazil and he does this what he calls revolutionary theater he calls it the rehearsal for the revolution and basically working with people who are not necessarily actors who have never had that kind of training and creating these theatrical scenarios around uh oppression around situations where they are, where people are oppressed and they have the opportunity to tell their stories and experience both sides of it. So you have these actors who are not actors come and they play, some of them play themselves and some of them play positions of power. So he was working with Brazilian uh, farmers who were having their land taken away by rich people in the city who were buying it up and kicking them off and kind of recreating this feudal system. So they came out and did this transformative work around uh these landowner or these farmers having an opportunity to kind of play out the scenarios that they were experiencing of extra high rents of being kicked off their land of having their homes taken away of having parts of their you know produce and surplus taken away uh and experience these things so it's called theater of the oppressed and i had read lots about it and i was planning on doing it and i come down to haiti with these teenage girls and i'm like we're gonna talk about what it feels like to, like, be oppressed, you know, you're in some dynamic, like, I had all of these ideas about how this was gonna work, and I get there, and I'm, like, and we're, like, talking, you know, working through a translator, because they speak Creole, and, like, I speak French, but, you know, the Creole's different, and I'm learning what I can, we're speaking through a translator, and we're talking about you know, I'm like, what are we going to talk about that's oppressive? You know, like, what is the analogous situation for these Haitian girls to these Brazilian peasant farmers, you know? And I'm, like, asking them what it feels like to be a girl in this village, and, like, what are the chores they do? And it just becomes abundantly clear as we're talking that they do not think of themselves as oppressed. Mm -hmm. I am trying to put this idea that they are oppressed... On top of them. And I just immediately, it just felt like this giant hand had come out of the sky and just smacked me across the face Mm. and said, Rachel, what you are doing here is not working because they do not have this vision of themselves as victims. And why are you coming in here trying to create a piece of theater that makes them victimized when they're not trying to tell a story about them being victimized? So instead, they wanted to tell... So I was like, okay, well, like, what kind of theater story would you like to make? We're, I'm not bringing in a script. We're creating this piece together. What kind of story would you like to tell? And one girl raises her in, and she says, I think we should tell a story about a girl who loves math. <laughs> and I was Great. like, amazing. <laughs> that? Like, like proofs? Yeah, right? <laughs> right. I was like, what kind of... Geometry? Because I can get down with that. You know. And they were all super into this idea, and I was like, amazing. This is so awesome. Totally independently, these girls just decided they wanted to tell a story, so they told this story, and it was called Nakia Grows Up, and she's this little girl who loves math, and you know they were totally aware of these gender biases that are here in the school system in Haiti as they are here, that girls are often taught that they are not good at math. But she's really good at it, and everybody teases her and says, oh, why don't you want to be playing with dolls, whatever? And she's like, no, I just really love math. And she overcomes these obstacles, and she becomes a math professor. <laughs> and, like, it was just, you know, and then they wrote the whole thing. I was not in it. They just performed it. They come in these incredible costumes, you know. I didn't have any expectation that they would come in. We're in this very, very small village in Haiti, and I was not expecting that they would... You know, I didn't want to assume that there would be stuff to make costumes out of, but lo and behold, every single one of them comes up in costume. You know, one of them was playing her father, and she she found this gray dyed wool. I don't know where she got it. She gave gave herself this full beard. She's wearing (laughs) her dad's clothes. She looks incredible. And they did this amazing story about this girl who just overcomes this obstacle to be who she wants to be, that would be entirely readable and translatable to an audience in America. It was so much about the themes that we all experience Mm -hmm. of gender bias and overcoming obstacles and school and the triumph of a girl who wants to succeed in academia. And it was like, I just got out of the way of them. And they did this incredible thing. And it was I mean if I have to say like top three biggest lessons I've ever learned like that is absolutely one of them to have come in laden with all of this well-intentioned literature and pedagogy around what my role as a theater maker is and just to have all of that just like flung from my hands and just to be left just in awe of the creative impulse that exists in everybody if we just give a space for it to be there. Wow yeah. Well, oh, I'll, it's all about that math, I guess. I, it all comes <laughs> back to math.
1: Um, I just I keep thinking about the analogy you said earlier about the sledgehammer and like how we're all just yeah. kind of like tearing things down. But I think it takes I think we have to I think we, we all need to be open. Yeah. To to tearing things down, because I think when we're you you've been mentioning privilege a lot. And I also hold a lot of marginalized identities, but also privileged identities. Mm-hmm. And so I grapple with that often as well. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I saw a meme earlier at, at some point recently of, like, rights aren't, it's not like, you, giving you rights isn't less rights for me. It's not pie. Right. Like, there's not, like, a limited number of, of rights. Um, I don't know. I just, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, I have lots of different things swirling in my head right now of, around, of you know like us imposing things on people versus letting people share their own like tell us what they need and share their own stories yeah. and also people we have to be willing to listen and who are the people making the decisions and are they willing to listen no <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know so it's just like this whole like, complicated yeah
0: thing and mm-hmm. yeah go ahead well i think like what you said about it not being a pie i think it that that's a real central component of this, and I think it undergirds a lot of the fear of destroying things, right, is this Mm -hmm. fear that um, if you take down the walls that are fencing you in, you take down the walls that are protecting what I have, and I think that that comes from this, I think people have been talking about this more, and I've been reading a lot about this, you know, from Adrienne Marie Brown, uh, you know, to you know, all kinds of early philosophers who I think thought a lot about this, you know, this idea, this scarcity mentality, mm-hmm. you know, and really shifting us towards a philosophy of abundance and an, and just an undergirding belief in abundance that there is space for everybody at this table, that there is enough food for everybody to have enough food, that there is enough space for everybody to live a healthy, productive life. Uh, And that if we come to it with that mentality and we are brave enough to hold fast to the things that make us feel like who we are, but don't hold fast to the idea that other people can't have versions of that that look really different from ours. You know, if we really try hard to come to the table with that, we can just really radically transform what this world looks like, you know, and that is a really scary thing for people to do because I Mm -hmm. think it is so much easier to just do what we have been doing, Rather than do anything differently. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, you know, th- th- like that feels like an act of visibility too, is this act of showing people that you can do that, that you can like choose new ways of moving through the world and making space for other people. That feels really important, but mm-hmm. it's scary. And, and I feel it in me too. Of yeah. Like, oh, like now we're sharing like all the space, you know, and it's like, there's enough space there's enough space like the idea that we are all fenced in you know I think that that's a beautiful thing that is happening with the queer community just the idea that the word queer has just become more useful than adding another letter every time we realize that somebody else is in this room with us is like screw the room, like, let's just knock the walls down, like, that, like, maybe queer is a verb, you know, I love when people use queer things, yeah, queering the thing, like, queering this thing and queering that thing is, Mm -hmm. like, is the part of queering a thing is to just run roughshod over the idea that the thing had a frame around it, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's terrifying, and I think that I empathize with anybody who feels terrified of that, of, like, are we going to get rid of names for everything? Are we going to get rid of everything? And, it, like, and how to live in that, I think, is the thing that we're all still figuring out, right? Like, how do you parent a child and not without this binary idea of a mother right. and a father? How do you parent a child in a community that wants to see kids succeed beyond a nuclear household? You know, like, how do you create a community that isn't, Homogeneous. I think about that all the time of like community means so much to me. I grew up in a community where everybody looked a lot like me, but it was a really successful community. So how do we create a community that isn't just the types of people who look like us and do the things that we do? You know, like what is a mixed income, mixed race, mixed gendered, non-gendered? you know, m- mixed-use <laughs> community mm. look like, you know? I think that they're, we're all a little mystified by that, but yeah. I think part of coming to a philosophy of abundance is saying, yeah, this is terrifying, we don't know the answer to this, and it's gonna require a, a real act of good faith on a lot of different people and a lot of listening and a lot of caring and a lot of leaning into the unknown. But we're just going to trust that it can be done, that that can happen. Yeah. And I think that just like shifting that worldview shifts the rest of it in a way that feels really transformative. Yeah. like so follow the fear. Mm-hmm. Follow the um,
1: fear. I, you know, I you're talking a lot about like breaking walls down and do we need labels? And this comes up in my trainings every time because I do a whole section on terminology just so mm-hmm. everyone can get – on the same page of, like, how we were talking about earlier, like, what is sexual orientation versus gender identity and gender expression?
0: Mm -hmm. And Um, very soft into the microphone applause for you because I think that sometimes we do ourselves a disservice by jumping past that because we're all past it and forgetting that some people are not on our side here because they are just – don't know literally what they're supposed to say. Right, yeah. soft clap for
1: you. Thank you so much. Um, But, yeah, so I – you know, and then I go through a couple of terms that like I'll be talking about like binary and transgender and gender queer. And then um, inevitably it comes up in every training. so now I, I preemptively talk about, so why do we need labels? Because people will say, why can't we just knock the walls down? Why can't we just all live, you know, coexist and be? and why do we have to put labels to everything? and, and, and like ideally, yeah, that'd be awesome if that were the case. But it's like we need labels. In some capacity, to to build because we're not approaching the table with abundance, and because the world is structured the way that it is, it's like we need these labels so we can find community, and so we can find each other, and so we can, you know, rally for what, so we can have a seat at the table. Um, And uh, it's just it's so it's so complicated Mm because it's like I'm it's almost like I'm teaching two different things in the same session of but then don't get too caught up on people's labels because it's more about the person sitting in front of you. But here's a list of 75 labels that, you know, that you should be familiar with. And it's like, you know, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do, you know, and I I also think about how do you raise babies, um, Mm -hmm. in a binary world without imposing those binary notions onto them. And it's, Really scary, and I don't know if that goes into my reasoning of maybe not wanting to have kids because yeah. like, I don't even want to deal with it because it feels yeah. too hard. If you don't do
0: it, you can't do it wrong. Right?
1: Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. That's I don't something know. I'm. Even though I'm a full-grown adult, it's still something I'm uh-huh. thinking about. Of, of like that just feels really hard, yeah. but also really important. And mm-hmm. like I can't. For me, like I I have no judgments on people who raise their babies with a gender, and like that is their that's their prerogative Mm -hmm. but for me if I were to ever have kids like it would have to I would they would have to be raised in a way that didn't impose gender on them for me like I can't stop the outside world right right? and they're still gonna get socialized in certain ways but if there can be one one avenue or one channel where that's not the case yeah
0: I think that's really impactful yeah totally yeah my housemate um, is non-binary and uses they them pronouns and is a teacher, high school teacher. And they teach in a high school uh, where that community is not necessarily familiar with that. They're not getting mm-hmm. that at home. Mix R. Uh, what's that? Mix
1: R. Mix R. <laughs> is mix? Mix is a, a gender neutral honorific. Oh. So instead of Mr. or Miss or Mrs. I mix, love that. Yeah,
0: X. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm. They just call them by their last name which you will not be surprised it starts with an r oh my goodness awesome! Um, and it's like a really badass last name so like it just makes them sound even <laughs> more so badass cool. and you know i don't know I, i've not been there i've not seen what their relationship is with the students that they teach but i know them well enough to just and be absolutely sure that they are this, this incredible fun loving supportive presence for a lot of these students and they are just like, being bravely visible in a community that isn't necessarily conditioned to accept that or support that. And I just know that for every single one of those kids, at the very least, that is an example of a way that we don't have to adhere to the thing that we all were taught to believe was true. Yeah, And that probably for at least one of the hundreds of kids that they have taught, that matters so much in terms of them Mm -hmm. being able to say, that like mm-hmm. that makes sense for me and that just feels so powerful yeah mm-hmm. so to be an avenue like that for your own child or to be an avenue like that for anybody I think is hugely powerful
1: yeah and it all comes back to visibility and mm-hmm. like being able to see yourself in somebody else and yeah. in some kind of way mm-hmm. is so important um okay I'm gonna switch gears a little bit okay switch them um up. so I had asked you to think of a would you rather question. Uh huh. But before I ask yours, I'm actually going to ask you a would you rather question from our guest previous. Oh, so, great. So like, i kind of doing like a chain of would you rather's. Uh huh. So would you rather be able to change the future or change the past?
0: Ooh. Change the future? Yeah. Mm hmm. Do you want me to explain why?
1: Uh, yeah, I I chose that one as well. So I'm yeah. curious to hear to hear what you your thoughts.
0: And it's funny because I should say, that when people say, "Would you rather travel to the future or the past?" I mm. always say the past. Mm, but in terms of changing it, I don't know. I think I feel like the past is messed up, and like all kinds of things went wrong. And it's incredible to imagine worlds where things happened differently and there were different outcomes, but. I guess I am an eternal optimist mm-hmm. and I have never for a second believed that we are past redemption, that we are past a turning point. I think these are dark, scary times that we live in. And I think the idea that we might be past redemption, certainly when it comes to the climate and the planet, I think is a thing that is starting to settle in like a very scary gray cloud. But I still A <laughs> very dark gray cloud. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. Uh, but I still don't feel like we are past redemption. I don't feel like what has happened in any way is going to prohibit us from doing things differently. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, change. and in some ways changing the future is about what you do today. So right. in some ways it's kind yeah. of a cheeky response because you're like, sure, I'd change the future. I'm going to do it right now. Mm-hmm. But I think feeling like we have the capacity to use all of the lessons that we have learned from the past and all of the tragedy and all of the hardship and the heartache and the trauma, that if we can take that and pivot ourselves towards a different way of being. And I don't know. I mean, I think we all love to posit whether humans are more good or more bad and I just feel like the more I think about it, the more I feel like it's impossible to make a judgment call like Mm -hmm. that. You know, we're so mixed up in the realities of the world and of survival and who can say and who can say that if we started from scratch, we wouldn't do all the same things all over again. And maybe who's on top would look different than last time, but maybe we'd still oppress each other in the same ways that we have. But I don't know. I think the ways, you know, and I think about this in terms of, the internet and the connectivity that we have now that we didn't used to. You know, I am a person who doesn't like math and loves art and listening, so I'm not a big fan of computers. Mm. But I my ex-girlfriend loves this singularity idea that eventually will become fused with the cloud and our consciousness will be connected. And as terrifying as that is to me, I am very compelled by the idea that what is in the cloud, what is in the internet is uh, it is the collection of everything humans know mm, and that mm-hmm. if we could attach our empathy to a consciousness that is capable of knowing that much, that maybe that is what will propel us forward towards a kinder, more empathetic future, that we will be able to draw on everything we know rather than our very narrow experience of the world around us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was a much more
0: articulate and thoughtful response than I,
1: like, but very similar to like my answer was uh-huh. like, learn from the past and do better in the future. But yeah. like what you said was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks. Yeah. I'm sure mm-hmm. yours was articulate too. Though. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, we'll have to play it back and see. I oh, yes, uh, can't wait. <laughs> um,
0: it's only R's and D's. I assume. <laughs> You're uh, I you break. Break. <laughs> exactly. They're so articulate. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh, I was going to say
1: something and now I can't remember what it was. Um, I think it was around the idea of uh, it was, Oh, here, here, here it is. Ah. Um, thinking about like everything that humans know being in the cloud and it Mm -hmm. connecting us in this way. And it it all just kind of ties back to storytelling and like Mm -hmm. how, like if we have this cloud or we have this like space where we are uploading everything either literally or figuratively and how are we going to learn from it? I think that also is like, that is a story in and of itself. And Mm -hmm. it's like, who's, who's at the table listening and like if if we had an opportunity would people show up and mm-hmm. would people download what we what we put up there and yeah. really do it differently or i mean there's i mean it's not known but it's just interesting to think about yeah and also i don't know that i want my brain thoughts up in a cloud for other people to access <laughs> i know there's some,
0: I, I feel so torn by this idea that like but what if this like straight close-minded white guy in wherever he lives, like, could, that technology would create a situation where he could kind of embody your consciousness for a moment just mm. to try it on? Literally walk in your shoes, yeah. in your brain. Would yeah, would that do something powerful, you know? Or would that be exploitative? You know, I mm-hmm. think, like, the sad reality is that the way that the world is structured now, it just feels like every good idea gets cannibalized into something that can be sold to somebody else and I hate that so much, like how much human ingenuity has just gone into things that then become packaged for people who can afford to buy it. So like, would that just become sort of a weird fetishy tourism for people who can afford to do it? Or would that be a way that we can, you know, but that is a format of storytelling that could be incredibly powerful of like, we can embody somebody else's consciousness and experience like this is what that, you know, and also, of course, you can't embody somebody's consciousness in a 25 minute experience you know Mm -hmm. that that's like a lifelong thing you know um but I don't know just the capacities for that and this to me feels like a place where my wanting to lean into a philosophy of abundance comes up against my terror is I just want to say no that's not normal like I don't like computers I don't like screens like I like running barefoot through the woods I like getting to know people through the good hard work of staring into their eyes and listening to them so to sort of Okay, if I'm going to lean into this philosophy of abundance, then that has to mean embracing the ways that technology can better us, you know, Mm -hmm. and and how to do that. And I feel like um, Sue, my my ex-girlfriend, like really helped me come around to this idea because she's just a person who naturally embraces the idea that we can use technology for good, that that will be a useful thing, that that will help us make us wiser and better and kinder and sort of having her talk me through that, you know. And I also think, you know, the work of Octavia Butler and talking about speculative fiction and the importance of storytelling as it relates to a future that has yet to happen, of, like, Mm -hmm. how do we tell stories of what is possible in the future that also come from a place of abundance and also come from unlikely heroes and unlikely journeys. And so I don't know if you're familiar with her sci-fi work. Mm -hmm. She, like, writes often of these black women heroines in these futuristic sci-fi worlds that are, you know, in the traditional sci-fi canon are almost exclusively straight white men. And this, like, act of subversion of saying, like, this crazy world future can also be disruptive to this idea that we have about who gets to be in that space. And so and her work informs a lot of um, the Brown sisters who do this incredible... Podcast, which is also amazing. Shout out to them, uh, called uh "How to Survive the End of the World." That's mm. just kind of contemplations on apocalypse in myriad different ways. So, if you haven't given it a listen, that's a that's a good one to check out. They just talk a lot about that of like what is the future that we want to look uh, live in and what does it look like. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we're shaping it right now. We're, we're shaping it. on we're doing it, doing it. Yeah, we're changing the future in the present. Yeah. Well, I think like bef- like in the meantime, while we're working on figuring out how to actually technologically embrace each other's you know experiences to build empathy I think we're doing it with our podcasts and mm-hmm. like with the storytelling that we're doing in a more primitive way totally. but but also using technology to get it to to the ears of hopefully millions mm-hmm. um come on I'm guys. looking right at the out, microphone. wherever you this are yeah. it,
0: right? <laughs> um just click on it <laughs> yeah
1: just click it click
0: it um so what's your what was the would you rather that you came up with so in keeping with these ideas around listening and telling and storytelling, uh, I felt in the vein of that a good one would be, would you rather only be able to speak or only be able to listen? Oh my
1: gosh. I'm writing that down. Uh, what, what's your answer?
0: It feels a little torturous, but I I guess I will say listen. Mm -hmm. And I acknowledge that torturousness because as much as I love to listen, I really love to talk. (laughs) (laughs) I love to talk. I love to talk so much. I love to hear myself talk uh literally same yeah totally <laughs> I, yeah and I you know and it's funny as two people who are about cultivating experiences for other people to be heard that were like but let's take an hour and we just talk can I just have a turn yeah exactly because I just really want to talk and you know that's okay like yeah. philosophy of abundance it's okay. everybody gets to talk everybody you gets should be turn. able to talk too, you, you yeah. know so that feels like a particularly excruciating choice of like if I could only listen and then I also think as people whose stories do matter. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that you and I occupy space that is not talked about enough. So I do think that people whose stories aren't told, like should speak those stories, you know. But I think that if the inverse of not being able to, um, if only being able to talk, the inverse of that is never being able to listen, then I think I would have to choose only be able to listen. Because Mm -hmm. I think that um, I would do nobody any good if i was only talking and Mm -hmm. not listening so it would be a painful painful task to zip up this big mouth and just shut up for the rest of my life but if i had to choose the sound of listening Mm -hmm. the sound of listening
1: um it reminds me did you ever see school of rock Mm -hmm. uh the song if only you would listen Mm. and i just like (laughs) i i didn't i didn't listen to the um to the soundtrack before so this this song hit me in this particular way of I just, like, could not stop crying as they were singing. And it's not particularly, I don't know that it's meant, I mean, I think it's meant to evoke somewhat of an emotional Uh feeling, but I just was like, oh, my God, if if you just would have, like, listened. And it's almost like even listening to what I wasn't saying, Uh like what I didn't have the words to say, if you could have just listened. And you meaning, like, society and my community and my family. And um, I don't know, it just reminds me of if only you could listen. Uh Uh, Are you going to sing it now? i would like about to, but oh, no. Please don't hold back. <laughs> I really
0: want... <laughs> no, okay. Um <laughs> new would you rather? You could never sing and you could only sing school of rock yeah. songs. I would absolutely pick only sing school of rock songs. Uh-huh. What would you do? Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you could only sing
1: one thing, I'm like, hey
0: well, that musical's decent. <laughs> yeah, I stick it to the man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um okay, so we're um we're nearing the end of our time together. Uh-huh. I put together just a couple of rapid fire questions that I'm gonna read off to you and okay. just answer to the best of your ability as quickly as possible. Okay. Um, writing or reading. Writing. Acting or singing? Acting. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Beach or mountains? Beach. Biking or running? Running. Bagels or donuts? Bagels. Good. Train or plane? Uh, train. Pants or shorts? Pants. Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Night or day? Night. Favorite dessert? Oh, moose. chocolate moose. Ooh, huh. great. <sighs> Panic. You, okay. you nailed it. That was it? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. You know, everyone has, has answered bagel. And everyone's correct.
0: Yeah, in answering, we're that. in New York. so yeah. <laughs> if you take the show on the road, people will answer differently. Don't trust them. I will not, because I love bagels more than anything. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, mm. I would say
1: that's very true. Yeah, yeah, um, bagels
0: are for everyone. They are. Oh, They're for lovers. Oh my gosh. And for everyone. Bagels like are <laughs> for <laughs> lovers. I mean, right? Are they not? <sighs> yes, they are. Nothing like a romantic sharing of a bagel. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what kind of schmear? It depends on my mood, uh-huh. uh, but
1: typically I'll go scallion mm. or veggie. Yes. Sometimes plain, sometimes strawberry. Mm, okay, you lost me at strawberry. All right, but like on a sesame bagel, strawberry. Mm. It's like it's like if I'm not in a savory mood but still want a bagel, that's what I'll do. I just say I'm always in a savory
0: mood. So what's, what's your schmear? Yeah, uh, veggie, scallion, <laughs> all veg. But I like – I'll go for plain. Like I will yeah. go for plain – Every day before I go for strawberry. I will, okay. What I will do is, like, when the party's wrapping up, I'll, like, put a spoon in the strawberry and just, like, eat it because it kind of tastes like thick yogurt. So you mm-hmm. don't not like it. Yeah. It's, it's just, just, like, I don't want to corrupt the bagel, yeah. the savory bagel experience. That
1: is fair. Yeah. I also, I'm a fan of putting tomato on, not the strawberry version, but any of the other versions. Oh, yeah. Um, add a um, tomato. Add a tomato. Yeah, like, Bobby's nodding. He gets
0: yeah. Me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel this is related to the story I'm about to tell you about my brother's bar mitzvah, which is that my brother was 13 and, like, thought he was so cool. So, like, we had bagels with all the schmears, whatever, as, like, a part of the spread. But he really wanted a Subway sandwich that would be incredibly long, because that's a thing that they that's do. That's cool.
1: I can see that. Um, for sure. So
0: there was, like, all of the typical Jewish fare at his party, and then also, like, a six-foot-long Subway. <laughs> Sandwich that was then cut up and was a Subway sandwich that was just very much for Jacob to be his own idiosyncratic way. That's really oh, cool. I said his name. I hadn't said anybody else's name. I feel I didn't want to share anybody else's story that their version, but I feel comfortable that jacob would be okay with people knowing that he had a six foot long subway sandwich at his bar mitzvah mm-hmm. <laughs> i am in awe of that jacob mazel tov, jacob on your bar mitzvah mazel, however great. long ago mm-hmm.
1: and mazel tov on asserting your need and want for a six foot sandwich totally That's amazing that gets in there yeah totally mm-hmm. um i meant to ask you this before so i could um share with folks upcoming projects or things that you want to share but i forgot to ask so what shows do you have coming up? What other, what, how how do we get in touch with you on social media? Tell us everything. Oh my goodness. If you want us to so stay much in touch to share. With you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, please get in touch. Message me. Okay. I love that. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at goodgraciousrachel. Uh, and yeah, and I'm also on Twitter as Rachel Garbus. And sometimes I post funny things and sometimes I don't. But I always post what I write. Um, so some new I'm writing a piece right now on uh, Obergefell v. Hodge and contemplating that in the Trump era so you can check that out it'll be out on Wussy Mag which is a uh queer rag out of atlanta talking about queer stuff cool so you can read that and then yeah catch me around town doing shows i'll be doing the thank you for coming out show in june i guess if you're hearing this in july you have missed the pride one but there will be more uh and doing some live storytelling and also my senior moments podcast will be out so yeah follow me around town i'll be around doing fun stuff awesome yeah uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having
1: me, Doug. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, if you want to follow Thank You For Coming Out on social media, um, our Instagram is at Thank You For Coming Out. Our Twitter is at TIFCOOfficial. Uh, and Facebook is also at Thank You For Coming Out. Um, thank you so much, everybody. And thank you for coming out. Thank you for
0: coming out.
1: Hey, it's Dubs Weinblatt, your host of Thank You For Coming Out. Thank you so much for listening with an open heart and an open mind. Please subscribe to our podcast on the platform of your choice. And don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps.